Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 7. If you'll join me there. As we begin chapter 7, we kind of pick up off of an event that happened at the closure of our study time last week where the Ark of the Lord, after having been in enemy territory for a period of time, has now been brought back uh, to the area of Israel once again, if you remember, as the result of just the uh, corruption, the, the spiritual apathy and rebellion, really against the ways of the Lord for a period of time, God's people became vulnerable and weakened and were ultimately overcome and conquered by the Philistines as their enemies. And as the result of that conquest the Philistines made over God's people, it tells us they actually stole uh, the Ark of the Lord, which had been brought into battle by the Israelites, kind of thinking really that the Ark of the Lord in a superstitious way was going to sort of be their uh, lucky charm, kind of some amulet or something that would give them deliverance somehow. Their dependence wasn't obviously upon God himself, because even when they decide to bring the Ark of the Lord after being defeated, they say, let's go get it, that it may save us. And we can see their dependence isn't upon the Lord. It's just upon the things of the Lord. And there's a very big difference there. We can go through all the routines and uh, rituals of church and Bible reading and saying prayers and doing spiritual practices, quite frankly, and really have uh, a lot of that going on. Yet there's no reality of an experience going on with God. It happens all the time. And in that day, much the same was taking place. And the people were engaged in sinful practices. There was corruption among even the religious system themselves. And and the ark of the Lord was captured, and as the result of that, there was this sadness that came over the heart, remember, of uh, one of the wives of uh, Eli's son. As her child was born, she named him Ichabod, saying, for the glory of the Lord uh, has departed. The idea is just that the presence, the glory, the favor of God she saw had really been retracted from his people because of their ways and what they had been doing. And now the ark was captured, the centerpiece of their whole worship life that represented the presence of God and where God spoke to them and met with them, where blood atonement was made for their sins. Well, it didn't stay too long, about seven months in Philistine territory, because though God's people had failed, uh, God's never defeated. And remember, God showed his power and manifested himself among the Philistines and was plaguing them with a particular problem, which we won't reacquire acquaint your minds with if you weren't here last time uh, and the Philistines ultimately realized we want nothing to do with the God of Israel and this ark does not belong among our people and they wanted to get it away and get it back over to Israel where it had come from so as the ark came back into the area of Beth Shemesh rather than the people of that area which remember was said it was a, an area of Levites a priestly town they should have handled it correctly but they were irreverent whether it was their curiosity or what it was, they were not reverent towards God and His holiness. God struck with a great amount of death as a consequence and a judgment. The people who looked into the ark of the Lord in a way that they were prohibited by the word of God to do so and kind of violated and transgressed God's will. And as a result of that, the people were kind of nervous about the presence of God who's able to stand before this holy God. In verse 21 of chapter 6, we left off saying they then sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, which seems to be probably the next closest town at a higher location, saying to their brothers, the fellow Hebrews, to them, 
the Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord come down that is into our territory and take it up with you in other words we, we don't know what to do and they were terrified because they just experienced a discipline of the Lord and just wanted the ark removed and so it now gets moved over to another territory the area of Kirjath Jerim and what's interesting, and commentators really throw out different ideas and, and, and question why the ark wasn't brought back to Shiloh. Now, if you remember, Shiloh was where the tabernacle of the Lord was at this time period historically, until ultimately the tabernacle and the temple becomes permanent in Jerusalem uh, at that time. The tabernacle, or the place of worship where the ark really should have been in the Holy of Holies in the rear portion of the tabernacle was in Shiloh and yet it's somewhat kind of peculiar. There's no real indication in the Bible. We could only speculate why it didn't go back to Shiloh, but that is peculiar. Is that just another indication of where the people's hearts were at at this time spiritually? Uh, is it that something had happened to the tabernacle in Shiloh as well? It wasn't operating the way... We're not told, but the ark now, says chapter 7, verse 1, is in that area, and look what the Bible tells us. It says, the men of Kirjath-Jerim came down, they took the ark of the Lord, brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So they just decide to put it in some random individual's house. Uh, they consecrate, it tells us here, uh, one of uh, his sons, his family members, to keep or kind of watch over as a caretaker the ark of the Lord. I mean, it's, it's kind of sad to look at them. It looks like the, you know, like parking it in the in the garage out back and just telling one of the sons to keep an eye on the thing make sure nothing happens to it and here it just gets put in this random location in the house of Abinadab and it says verse 2 the ark remained there in Kirjath Jerim a long time and then the Holy Spirit adds it was actually there for 20 years now that is a long time and the ark of the Lord ends up remaining there in the house of Abinadab, we know until the time of King David's reign. So a long time, the ark of the Lord ends up in this house here. Again, things are not right spiritually among the people of God. Their hearts have turned away from the Lord. And one clear indication the Bible points out to us again is that the ark of God, the central and most important furnishing in the tabernacle of the Lord where the worship system was operated amongst the ark of God which represented God's throne and God's presence among his people where atonement was made for sin which was supposed to be central in their worship lives which was supposed to be brought uh, you know, to a place where it was in the center of the worship life of the people and kept there instead we see it's brought to, to a random house now and it's just kind of parked there. And for a long period of time, it remains there until the days of King David. 20 years, the ark was, was not, notice, it was not central in the life of the people of God, which is a testament symbolically that God himself was not central in the lives of his people. The presence of God, the glory of God, the, the voice of the Lord, the proper atonement for sin, all of these things, the work of the Lord was not central and it was not a part of the tabernacle if the tabernacle even was still in operation there in Shiloh. The main thing that should have been in the house of God, the presence of God, was actually missing for 20 years. 
Now, that's a long period of time. The reason is God had set aside in some ways, or excuse me, God had been set aside by his people. They had, in a sense, cast God behind their backs. We see in the next verse when there's a call to repentance by Samuel the prophet that God raises up to call them to revival, that God's people had set him aside from their lives. They were not serving him faithfully. It was a time of spiritual drought of real just disinterest in God. There was no desire for the presence of God. The hearts of the people had grown dull. It's almost as if in the same way, you know, if I, I, the older I'm getting, the more I'm beginning to realize I, I am having this struggle with, with eating snack food and junk food. And then when the food I'm supposed to eat comes around, my appetite is diminished for that because I've snacked on all these other things. And the same, I think, happens to people, honestly, spiritually. Sometimes people don't have a spiritual appetite because they're feeding on so many other things, which ultimately just dissatisfy and quickly, just like you know, eating something that gives you a quick sugar high, but it gives no nutrients to your body to actually function in a healthy, long-term way with energy or whatever. In the same way, so many times people can be consumed with partaking of this and participating in that and fulfilling their desires with this and that and pursuing and seeking and serving and worshiping because we're inclined to worship something all these other things and therefore we don't have room for god in our lives and really we have a dullness there's no desire for god there's no hunger for the presence of the lord and people are serving all types of other things for really their own interests and pleasures and it's a real time of barrenness spiritually But I want you to take notice, it is out of this time of spiritual barrenness, of dryness, where the presence of God, in a sense, has been pushed away by his people and and, and there's no longing for the Lord and his work and his power among their lives, that this becomes the occasion for what appears to be, in some ways, a a picture, a snapshot in the Bible of, of what we may, in some ways, call small revival. As God now raises up a prophet, Samuel, who comes on the scene to call the people to repentance and to spiritual renewal. Notice it says there in the end of verse 2 that, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So ultimately this barrenness spiritually, the misery of their experiences of the Philistines oppressing them, God let them be vulnerable to their enemies who were conquering them instead of them experiencing victory from the Lord. This ultimately led them being empty and really mourning over their condition. It says they were lamenting after God. Some translations say that they were mourning and seeking after God. So the idea is that they begin to recognize things are not right among them, that they're not right with God. The enemy is harshly oppressing them. They're in misery. They're tired of being miserable. And they begin in their grief to start to lament and mourn over their condition. And they're tired of being in the condition that they're in. They're finally starting to long for something else. And most importantly, they feel like they've been abandoned by God. And they realize the emptiness of this. And it is at this point, God raises up a prophet now to call them to revival. Again, keep in mind, 20 years have passed. Samuel is now coming into the prime of his ministry. He was a young boy we saw a few chapters ago. He's probably about a 30 or so year old man at this point in time. And he's really thrust into the prime of his ministry now as he begins to call the people to repentance on God's behalf. It says, verse 3, at this point, 
as their hearts are beginning to recognize the need of God in their lives. And that's always the way that revival typically begins. Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, if you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you. So we can tell what they were involved in and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So God gives Samuel the prophet here a message and the crux of his message is calling people, notice, to repentance, calling them to a place as the people of God to spiritual renewal, calling them to respond to God that they might experience revival among them. And notice it started with a realization that they had turned away from God, that they had left God, that they had departed from God, that they had consciously chosen to go after other things and they now needed to turn back to God. The first statement that Samuel makes is, if you will return to the Lord with all your hearts. In other words, he's saying, if this is what you're desiring to do, then you need to turn back to the Lord. The idea is they had turned their backs on God from God's viewpoint. And so he says, you need to return. And again, this can be an occasion that happens with God's people from time to time historically. In the days of Jeremiah, chapter 3 and chapter 4, we read this repeated emphasis of the prophet Jeremiah where God says, return to me multiple times in that chapter he calls the people of God return to me and he says you backsliding children return to me and I will heal your backslidings and, and let me just say I think it is a marvelous thing as awesome as God is and as holy as God is and and the ways in which we often relate to God and even as again keep in mind these were his people these were his people who knew better. They had the word of God. They had tasted the goodness of the Lord. They had tasted the power of God, the experiences of God. And then yet they had turned away from God and walked away and wandered off to worship and serve and indulge in other things and grew apathetic spiritually that God gives the invitation, return. That God says, come back. I want you to return and that God actually calls us to do such. And that's something he says, if you will return with all your hearts. And again, the idea there is turning back to him, a decision to a wholehearted return to right relationship with him. God says, don't rend your garments. He says in the prophet, rend your hearts. And it's a wholehearted return. If you will return, he says, with all your hearts. If you're going to do it, then he says, return with all your heart wholeheartedly to that former condition of when you were in right relationship with me. Again, we even see this when we get to the New Testament when Jesus writes to the seven churches. And remember to the church of Ephesus when he says, you have some things going on there. You're active, busy, productive. Nevertheless, he said, I have this one thing against you. And he said, what? You have left your first love. Same thing again. They left the right relational commitment they had to God. And Jesus says, therefore, repent. Return to the first works. Do those things again. And again, this is something that at time to time is a necessary thing. It can come upon one of our lives. It can come upon a church. It can come upon the church collectively at times in different generations where there is genuinely a need for a spiritual renewal among God's people. 
a revival that we would turn back to the Lord and that it would begin with us. And when revival happens with God's people and their spiritual renewal in us, then an awakening can begin to happen among the unsaved world around us because we then begin to live in right relationship with the Lord and represent him properly. So he says, if you're going to return, return with all your hearts. And then he says, and put away the foreign gods and the asterisk. So notice this spiritual call of renewal or repentance, which will lead to revival. It also included a choice to forsake the sinful things that they were currently practicing and involved in. It wasn't just, well, return to God, but bring all your junk and garbage with you. It was make a break from that that you might get back into right relationship with God. It would be the same as if, for example, someone in a marriage relationship chose to forsake the marriage partner. They enter into adultery with someone else. And then after being in active adultery with another person, their spouse says, look, I'll take you back if you'll return to me. And they say, okay, I'll return. And then they return, but they still sleep with the old person. No, 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 that's not the way it works. If you're going to return, you need to break off the old relationship. That's called returning. You return to what's right and you forsake and rid yourself of a what's wrong that was leading you astray. And God says here, if you're going to return with all your heart, then what that involves is, he says, putting away, separating, forsaking those things that were involved in your life that you were practicing and pursuing that are sinful, that were wrong. And this is a necessary part of repentance and experiencing spiritual renewal. Sometimes we need to put away those things that have kept us from being in right relationship with God and cut the ties with those things and dispose of them from our lives actively in a practical way. And then he says, and prepare your hearts for the Lord. The idea there is offering or dedicating our heart to God in a way that it's ready and it's prepared for him above all else. Lord, here's my heart. My heart is offered to you. It's prepared for you to be useful for whatever you want. And then he says, finally, and serve him only. Again, the idea is exclusivity. Giving God the exclusivity where you break from everything else that you're serving that's keeping you from God and he becomes your master and the one that you aim to please and obey. And when a person experiences true repentance, this is what happens to the heart. There's the sense of the heart saying, I'm turning to God wholeheartedly. I'm leaving behind all these other things. I don't care what it involves. And I now want to offer my heart to God and serve him and serve him only. And your chief aim and your number one desire is to just please and obey the Lord above all else. This is a beautiful picture in many ways of what repentance really should look like in God's people individually for you and I if needed or among a church or among the people of God collectively when there's a need for such in our lives. And take notice here, if you would, that repentance is kind of represented in verse three there by two different things. It's represented by two things working in conjunction. There's an inward aspect of something happening in the heart, right? That's something that you and I can't see. Only God can see that. And it's something that really is measured only by something that happens between you and the Lord. He says there in verse 3, turn to the Lord with all your hearts and prepare your hearts for the Lord. Well, that's something that happens internal. But there's a part of repentance that something has to happen in the heart. 
So there's an internal part of repentance, but then there's also that external or outward aspect of repentance that happens then through practical obedience. Because in conjunction with this, he says, put away the foreign gods and serve the Lord only. Now that can be observed. It's outwardly obvious if someone has departed from or forsaken old sinful practices or wrong habits or lifestyles of disobedience and if they start actively serving the Lord now. So we see with repentance here that there is this inward work of the heart which only God can see but it then has a fruit to it, an outward manifestation as a lifestyle begins to adopt what's happening inwardly by living it out in practical obedience and steps of service unto the Lord. Well, verse 4, when this call goes out to them, saying that if they do this, God will then answer and his power will come and deliver them, they heed this call, rather short sermon, one verse is all it took, and the people's hearts were ripe and they responded. It says, verse 4, the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and they served the Lord only. So, Here's their response now. They forsook serving the gods that included selfish pursuit of intellect and prosperity. And that's really what Baal worship was. Baal worship was, was the worship of the intellect and, and prosperity to find blessing upon their crops and so forth. And, and, and the worship of Ashtoreth, whether it was this or in all the other different pagan cultures, was usually the worship of some form of sensual pleasure. Uh, and, and fornication and different activities and pursuits that were inappropriate. And so here, instead of these things, they turn away from them. They now turn to the Lord and begin to serve him. And again, their repentance is measurable. There's fruit to their repentance. The people hear the word of God and they're stirred by the word of God, but then they respond to it. And, and this is a critical thing because... One of the biggest errors I think sometimes that we can make as God's people is we hear the word of God and we're stirred, but we never respond. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be stirred. I want to be changed. I don't want to just be stirred. I don't want to just nod my head as, as an assent to, yeah, that's true when I read the Bible or when I hear a Bible study and the God's word is spoken to me in any capacity. I, I don't want to you know, be that person like Jesus said, you know, the difference between the wise person and the foolish person. He said the, the wise and the foolish, the one distinction, he says one hears my words and puts them into practice and does them. The other hears my words and then he doesn't do them. And this is such an important, that people heard the prophetic word of Samuel. They heard the prophetic spoken word coming to them, calling them to repent, calling them for spiritual revival, and they responded. They acted. They yielded themselves to what the Spirit of God was saying to them. They repented of what was wrong. They turned to the Lord and began to serve him. In verse 5, Samuel then said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray... To the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, it says, drew out water and poured it before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. So at this point in time here, notice Samuel, I think in a very beautiful way, he wants to pray for God's continual work for them. So he calls the people to assemble together 
And Samuel says, gather together and and I want to pray for you. I want to ask for God's help, for his hand of favor to be upon you as you take this step to turn back to the Lord, that he would be with you and that he would help you in this process going forward. And and I want you to take notice, particularly in these chapters, we begin to see it. Samuel, as, as a representative of a man of God and a wonderful spiritual leader in the Bible, please take note how much prayer was a part of the ministry of this man, Samuel, who was a spiritual leader. There are constant references to him saying, can I pray for you? Or he stopped and he prayed to the Lord or the way he would handle something. He'd depart and he would seek the Lord about it. And we see this mark, this characterizing mark of this godly man and a very influential man used by the Lord powerfully in this generation. And it's very clear he was a man of prayer. He says, I will pray to the Lord for you. And they gather together and they draw water and it says they pour it out, verse 6, before the Lord. Now, certainly that idea there is is just sort of a, a symbolic act as they're pouring out the water there, it was symbolic of their commitment. If you just think of of taking water and pouring out a vessel of water onto dry, parched ground, uh, that act in and of itself is complete and it's irreversible. When you take water and you pour it out on dry, parched, arid ground, that water is, is, is gone. There's no way of recollecting. That is a irreversible Commitment. When the water's poured out, it's gone. It's once and done. And this is the idea. It's picturing there their commitment to the Lord. It was symbolic that they were making an irreversible, complete, wholehearted commitment to the Lord. They poured it all out. They were holding nothing back and they were not looking to retract their commitment once they made it. There was a total dedication that was being made. It was, it was a moment of decision, a moment of commitment and dedication. And I think sometimes these are critical moments in the Christian life. I think there need to be times when we consciously choose to yield ourselves to the Lord, where we make a decision and a, a level of commitment, a moment of commitment in our lives at times. They pour out that water before the Lord. It says also that day that they fasted there before the Lord and fasting again is really just a spiritual discipline which involves the denial of the natural body desires. It's a practice, a spiritual discipline really of denying the flesh and suppressing the self-life and refusing it so that we can learn to keep the natural desires of the body under control and be more yielded to that which is spiritual and supernatural instead. And notice also, thirdly, we see that was involved here is a time of confession. They said, we have sinned against the Lord. So there's this moment of confession of sin where again, no more justifications. They weren't rationalizing anything. There was just an open admitting before God, taking ownership. We have done wrong. We have not been right with God and they're confessing their sin before God in an open manner. They're unashamed. And as we look at these things again, I think this chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 7, is a very good picture the Word of God gives to us of what really spiritual revival looks like when it happens. These are the marks of spiritual revival, whether it's in the life of a person, in the life of a church, a congregation, or the people of God on a greater level. These are the same kind of things that we should see. People, like we saw initially, who are are coming to a sense of misery and apathy after years and years where they begin to sense we need God. 
and God's not a part of our lives and what's missing and we're tired of being miserable and it's been 20 years. Where's the power of God? Where's the glory of God? And the people begin to actually grieve and mourn over their condition. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. And the idea there isn't more in the sense of just you know mourning to be comforted just from the natural forms of grief, but the idea is mourning over one's spiritual condition. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said, for there shall be the kingdom of God. It's not talking about being poor in the sense of, oh, well, blessed are those who are poor. There are, there's nothing real blessed about being poor. But there's a blessing when you're poor in spirit. The idea is you realize your spiritual bankruptcy. And you realize there's such a deficiency spiritually in your life or among the things of God that makes you begin to long for a move of the kingdom of God in your heart or among you in such a way that you begin to grieve and lament seeking after God, longing for that. And then the word of the Lord coming and saying, you see it now, return to me, repent. Turn back to me. Put away those things that are hindering you from being in right relationship with me. Set aside those sins that are besetting you, those things that are not proper in your life and prepare your heart. Give it back to me again. Return to me wholeheartedly and serve me and me only. And in the midst of that, there comes as well that pouring out, that response to the Lord where where a person says, yes, Lord, that is it. And we just pour out our heart before the Lord. We make that commitment to return to him. There's confession of sin. There's this sense of wanting to deny the flesh and get right with God. And when you see these components beginning to converge together, these become the earmarks. Study church history. These are the same type of things laid out here in 1 Samuel chapter 7 that have become the characterizing marks of revivals among the people of God throughout the history at different stages of the church. And certainly there's a great need, I think, in many ways for this in our generation, in our time. I, I long for it. I hope you do. I recognize and see the, the need of such a thing in our hour and our day. So Samuel says, judge the children of Israel at Mizpah. And when the Philistines, watch what happens now, verse 7, heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Now now watch what's happening here. Look at the pattern. I don't know how, but verse 7 says the enemy, that's who this is, the Philistines, they hear that the children of Israel have gathered together at Mizpah. Now what did they gather together at Mizpah to do? To make a commitment to return to the Lord. So I don't know, did they attend the revival meeting? Were, were, were there some spies of the Philistines there and a couple of the spies they were trying to keep tabs on the Israelites and whoa these people are they're beginning to get serious about God again they're confessing their sin they're talking about returning to the Lord and serving him and putting away the foreign gods and somehow word gets back to the lords of the Philistines that the Israelites had gathered together and basically you could say they hear that something wonderful is beginning to happen between God and his people. And at this moment here, as God's people seek to get right with him relationally, what's it instantly followed by? Resistance from their enemy. And as soon as God's people begin to have this longing and desire, and they start to then take steps 
of commitment and response to the Lord and they're trying to get in right relationship with God, it is instantly followed up with resistance and attack from the enemy because why? The Philistines want to discourage and distract them from being right with their God because they know if these people are right with their God, the power of the Lord and the favor of the Lord will do wonderful things for them. And so they want to discourage this and counteract it and distract it from happening. And can I just say, that is a very fitting picture of a spiritual principle that will often be experienced. That whenever a person begins to have a longing in their heart to want to get right with God, to return to the Lord, you, you have some sense of, Lord, I want to get right with you. Or Lord, I, I haven't been where I'm supposed to be with you and your heart begins to turn back to the Lord or you maybe make a, a commitment at a, a retreat to the Lord that you're going to renew your devotion to the Lord or you're going to take a step forward and really begin to seek the Lord and serve Him only and you're going to put away things in your life that have been keeping you from that. I assure you, the enemy of your soul will always meet that very quickly with resistance and opposition and he will find ways to try and distract you from doing such and discourage such. Even, you know, even the sense of, uh, of just condemnation. Oh, what, what are you, Mr. Spiritual now all of a sudden? Oh, all of a sudden now you're going all of a sudden now you're going to get on fire for the Lord. And, and the enemy just tries to condemn and to discourage and do what he can to try and distract us because he doesn't want us to experience the favor of God in our lives. He doesn't want us to experience the Lord's victory in, in our lives. And this is what the Philistines do. If these people get right with God, they're going to walk in victory. And they're going to conquer us. And the enemy doesn't want you to walk in victory. So you have to know. You have to prepare in advance. If you're going to turn to the Lord, understand, if you turn to the Lord, the Lord is going to be greatly responsive to that you draw near to God he'll draw near to you but you can also count on if you try and turn to the Lord the enemy's going to be there going like this trying to do what he can to run interference and to try and stop you and dissuade you in whatever practical ways he can particularly they were going to launch an attack against them and you're going to face attacks so prepare for them and recognize it probably means you're headed in the right direction when the resistance comes so the Philistines now go up against Israel. Notice they intimidate Israel. They begin to get fearful. Verse 8, So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So you can tell their hearts are getting in right relationship with God now. Something wonderful is happening when God's people, what are they doing? They're desiring prayer for themselves. They're humbly turning to Samuel, who's their spiritual leader. They realize they need God's help. There's an awareness of their own weakness. They turn to Samuel and they say, Samuel, pray for us. They don't say, hey, rally the troops. And wh wh where's that ark again? Of, of What's that guy's name? Abinadab's house? Can you, can you go, go get the ark again? There's none of this. There's none of this conniving or thinking they're going to work things out in their flesh in any way. There is a total sense of if God does not help us, it's a lost cause. And they're completely dependent upon God now. And they realize the fundamental issue is prayer. The fundamental issue is reliance upon God. So they turn to Samuel, their spirits, and they say, don't cease, please. Cry out to the Lord our God for us 
that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Do you notice the change? What happened last time? They said, go get the ark that it might save us. You see their hearts are in a different place now? That he may save us. They realize it's God and God alone who can help them to overcome and have victory and experience his best for their lives. And it's a good thing when a heart comes to that recognition. Total dependence upon God for his power to have victory and success. Verse 9, And Samuel says, Then took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. So now we see worship beginning to be implemented again. Just these are the byproducts of spiritual revival, of renewal, prayer, dependency upon God, worship, blood atonement, appreciating sacrifice, and that sacrifice is what makes blood atonement before God. And Samuel, again, notice a third mention again of prayer, cries out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answers him. So here we see the offering of a lamb, as a sacrifice, seeking God's acceptance by the offering of a lamb. The understanding, this is where God's approval is found. God's approval is found through the blood of a sacrificial animal, of a sacrifice, an innocent substitute offered on our behalf in the same way we recognize that that is the only way to be right with God through Jesus through the Lamb of God, we have this fresh appreciation and when renewal and spiritual revival happens, these are the things that God's people become conscious of again. They become conscious again of that there's this compelling desire within to just want to worship and to worship the Lamb of God who took away our sins and to realize this is how we approach the Lord. And so therefore, worship doesn't become a thing. Well, that's just what we do to warm up for the Bible study. It's a thing we do to kind of you know, get our brains alert again and move a little bit. And so now we're ready to, to hear the Bible study. No, worship becomes something not for us. It becomes something for God. Look at the worship in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, chapter 5, the picture of the throne of God. And whenever you see it revealed in the book of Revelation, worship was not about the worshipers. Worship was something being rendered for God. We have a very confused idea today in the modern church about worship. Well, what would you think of worship today? What does it matter what you thought of worship today? What did God think of worship today? See, worship is for God. It's for God. It's offered to God. It's the, the sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of our lips giving thanks unto his name. Now, listen, I'm not saying that as we engage in worship and we praise the Lord and we do what we're obediently asked to do, to render worthiness to him and ascribe praise and adoration that I don't benefit from that as a secondary byproduct. By all means, I do. But the primary purpose of worship is to worship, to offer to God something, to give him that sacrifice of our praise, the fruit of our lips giving thanks unto his name. So it's not about what I experience through worship. We're, we're, we're too uh, you know, absorbed with this concept of our own experience. That's why sometimes it's called a sacrifice of praise. It's, it's a sacrifice. Whatever it costs me, Lord, I don't feel like singing. But it doesn't matter what I feel like because you are worthy of being sung too. Because you're the Lamb of God who died on my behalf and your blood was shed for me and you're worthy, worthy, worthy for all that you have done. And so it's something rendered to God. And when a heart is renewed and a person or God's people are revived, there's this desire again to worship. And here we see this picture of them now taking the time. And, and I'm pointing this out because take notice, what are they in the midst of at this moment? 
They're being attacked by the enemy. Now you would think, hey, everybody grab your weapons. The enemy's attacking. Instead, Samuel says, let's just have a worship service, why don't we? And he offers a lamb. You know, there were some people maybe who were still dull spirits who saying, shouldn't we be ready to like fight, engage? I mean, you want to have a worship service? Yes, because God is worthy of our worship. It does not matter what's going on. Yeah, there are battles. Yeah, there are fights. Yeah, we're, yeah there are things that, that are attacking and intimidating. And, but you know what? We still owe God worship. And so we're going to pause right here. And we're going to give to the Lord worship. And they offer the Lord a burnt offering, a sacrifice. And Samuel cries out to the Lord, Lord, help us. He knows the battle belongs to the Lord. And if they pause and worship, the Lord will be with them and help them in a much greater way anyway and will give them the victory they need. And that's what happens. Watch verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, as they're having their worship service, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. Uh-oh, we'll catch them off guard. We'll attack them during their church service there. But look what the Lord did. All it takes God to do is put together a thunderstorm. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day. And I don't know what that was like, but it just sounds good. He just thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. So as God's people are worshiping him and engaged seeking him, the Lord just somehow brings this supernatural intervention of a strong thunderstorm, a divine occurrence that just totally causes the enemy to be discombobulated and they're confused and they're just overcoming their confusion. Because God works to protect his people as they're seeking him and doing what's right. And the men of Israel then went out of Mizpah and they pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as Beth Car. So they gave, received victory from the Lord. And Samuel then took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. That song, Here I Raise My Ebenezer, Hither by Thy Help I Come. And here's where, of course, that comes from in that hymn there called the name of the stone Ebenezer, a memorial stone, saying, and this is why, what Ebenezer means, thus far the Lord has helped us. So he set up a stone of remembrance. And Israel did this from time to time. Remember Joshua with the stones in the Jordan? He set up memorial stones to remember the work and power of God. Jacob did this at one point in time there. I believe it was in Bethel. And they set up a memorial stone. Why? Because we have this terrible struggle with forgetting at times what God does. So sometimes we need reminders, memorials. One of the reasons God's given us communion. It's a way of remembering what Jesus has done for us, bringing us back into remembrance of what things we need to keep fresh in our minds. So here they set up this stone, an Ebenezer stone, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. Now again, the idea there, thus far the Lord has helped us, the idea is God has helped us thus far He's not going to abandon us now. That's the idea. Thus far, God has helped us. What the implication there is, if God's helped us thus far, certainly he's not going to abandon us now. He's not going to change. He's the God that changes not. He's not going to stop helping us. If he came through before, he'll come through again. If he provided before, he'll provide again. He will continue to help us as he always has in time past. That's who he is. He's the God who changes not. And how wonderful to have those markers of remembrance. Maybe for us it's a journal. Maybe it's, maybe, I don't know, maybe you go outside and pick up a rock. God does something wonderful. Go outside and pick up a rock and take out a Sharpie. 
Lord, you did this. You came through and stick it right there on your dresser. And the next time you're fretting, how am I going to pay the bills? Pick up your little stone. Oh, there it is right there. It has yesterday's date on it, but Lord, you've, you've helped us thus far. And if you've helped us thus far, you're not going to abandon us now. You'll do it again. And see, in whatever way it may be in our life, when we were at some crisis point or some difficulty, it is so healthy for us at times to remember. Because when we get in the moment, the crisis, the pressure, you know, you're in the middle of the trial, maybe even right now you're facing something and you desperately realize you really need some help or intervention to be able to recall, to remember that kind of Ebenezer moment. Oh, Lord, you've helped me thus far. You've always come through in my life. At every turn, in every situation, you always found a way to come through. You always showed up. You always made things go the way that ultimately they needed to go. You showed your strength and power and faithfulness. And, and just to be able to remember that, well, I think it's just a healthy thing for all of us in our lives. Perhaps tonight it's a good reminder to realize if he's helped you this far, he's going to help you again. And he knows what that need is. Verse 13 says, the Philistines were then subdued and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines, watch this, had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel, circle this word, recovered its territory from the hand of the Philistines. And also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Take note here again, literal events that happened as they were now in right relationship with God, their spiritual revival among the people, the Lord's renewed their relationship with him afresh once again. And look at the byproducts as the power of God begins to work among them once again. It tells us there in 14, I think really some byproducts of spiritual revival. You notice the words there, restoration, recovery, peace, and can I just say, when spiritual revival happens in our lives personally, among the people of God, among a family, these are typically the byproducts of spiritual revival, spiritual renewal. These are the things that begin to happen. God's power starts to move and things that were taken away are restored back. Relationships are restored. Marriages are restored. Families are restored because there's a spiritual renewal that sweeps through and as a result, what the enemy sought to ruin and destroy, the Lord restores it. I've seen him do it. You've experienced him do it, perhaps in your life. Territory that the enemy took away from us because we lost territory, God helps us recover territory. And he restores peace to us once again because there is no peace, saith the Lord, for the wicked. But when we get right with the Lord, there's a sense of peace that comes back into our life again. And things settle down and there's a calm, an inward sense in the soul of the peace of God. And verse 15 says, Samuel then judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all those places. So this describes sort of the ministry of Samuel, one of the last judges of Israel. He just kind of traveled. He had like a circuit. And it seems he would go to the different areas, visiting them, giving spiritual counsel and guidance, directing the people in the ways of God as his ministry. But verse 17 concludes, but he always returned to Ramah for his home was there. And there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar, notice, an altar of worship 
to the Lord. So Samuel, notice, he's out, he's serving, he's traveling around, ministering in the different locations, he's out and about letting God use his life as he's serving in ministry. But I want you to notice what kept Samuel anchored as a man spiritually. What kept him centered is his life remained anchored by his family life and by his personal worship life. It says he, though he went out ministering, he always kept back home. He always came back and his life remained anchored in his family and where he had an altar of personal worship to the Lord. And that's what kept this man centered. His family being anchored to a family life and his personal worship and devotion to God, that was the thing that kept him usable and effective. And you know what? Hey, serve the Lord. Be effective in the world, but always stay anchored and stay anchored by that family life God has given to you and most importantly, by your personal altar of worship to the Lord. Do not ever let your service rob you from your worship and personal communion with the Lord. Let that be something that is a byproduct of your time of being altered by being in the presence of God personally. Let's stand. We'll conclude.